the best outcome or the best practice would be how do I adopt a post breach mentality without the trauma of having to go through a breach, which is of course not easy. It's really hard. It requires courage, creativity, commitment, and executive sponsorship into cybersecurity programs. You're listening to KBcast, the cybersecurity podcast for all executives. Cutting through the jargon and hype to understand the landscape where risk and technology meet. Now, here's your host, Carissa Breen. Joining me today is President and CEO Edgard Capdeville from Nozomi Networks. And today, we're discussing critical infrastructure. Edgar, thanks for joining. It's wonderful to have you here. Carissa, thank you for having me. It's an honor to be here. Critical infrastructure, it's a big one. So I want to talk to you about your observation about critical infrastructure. What are your thoughts at a high level? Critical infrastructure is extremely important for most most nations, as the name implies. It includes uh, critical systems required for humans to, to be around. It includes energy, the production of energy, the production of electricity, oil and gas in, in many uh, countries is extremely important. It includes transportation from buses, metro, airports, ports. It includes the production of pharmaceuticals, many other manufacturing sectors. It really is the, the fundamental systems that's, you know, life as, as we know it in, in this modern world. So critical infrastructures is extremely important. I think over time, it, it has been automated. It's part of our digital transformation, but it really hasn't followed the same security evolution that say our financial systems or, or any other system that, that is, you know, initially monetizable. But by, uh, by hackers or, or other evildoers, financial systems have gone through great extent to protect themselves. Anyone who has credentials that can be monetized has gone, invested quite a bit on, on cybersecurity. And, and for the longest time, critical infrastructure has not had the need or, or any immediately monetizable asset that either a hacker or an evildoer could, could steal. So for the longest time, it hasn't really invested in the same way that, say, our, our financial systems have. So do you think, I mean, you're obviously based in the United States, that the colonial pipeline, do you think that sort of shone a spotlight on critical infrastructure, for example? Absolutely. I think a lot of people describe the world before and after colonial pipeline. Colonial pipeline was a very significant event. It started as an, as an IT-oriented hack. It got really close to becoming an, a critical infrastructure hack from the perspective of, of attacking critical infrastructure systems. It, was, it stopped short of that. But the impact was was pretty dramatic. It, it affected obviously liquid gas, gasoline distribution in the United States, and and it got the United States really close to having major outages in terms of availability of of energy resources. So yes, I think a lot of folks have ingested that episode as and divide the the, the world, if you will, the timeline in terms of before and after before and after the colonial pipeline attack. And uh, it has changed the way people think about critical infrastructure and how vulnerable it is and how much more attacks into it we're going to see. Yeah, no, you're absolutely right. And I think that the key thing here that you said, the impact now, again, like you're talking about like gas distribution, that's a major one. But if you look at like water, for example, imagine if we just couldn't get water, like how ballistic people would go, right? So it's a thing if, you know, no one wants to be like breached or there's a DDoS and you know, something happens or a company goes down, but you can't get like a necessity like water, for example. That, like that really does change the game. Do you think people out there think like this though? Like maybe that people aren't thinking about like critical infrastructure and oh, if we can't get water or gas, for example. 
So do you think that there will be more of an importance, whether it's in the United States or here in Australia, that people be thinking more about what happens if, because we've had a lot of breaches here in Australia, as you probably would have heard of in the last couple of weeks, if something like critical infrastructure gets breached? Do you think people are considering the impact of the magnitude of some of these events? Absolutely. And I think you touched up a very important vertical, which is water. In the United States, we had right before the colonial pipeline incident, we had the Oldsmar water plant incident in Florida, where the, the attack was slightly different. Colonial pipeline was more of a ransomware attack. The, the Oldsmar water plant in, in Florida was more of a, um, a remote access uh, attack where, where somebody came into the plant, changed the chemical composition of the water, and fortunately, it was caught in time. I think, as you pointed out, water, just like any other critical infrastructure, is fundamental to support human life. You could have had the, the impact that this attack could have had in terms of people poison or otherwise would have been pretty dramatic. So yes, the impact is being felt more and more across the globe because the more developed, the more automated the system, the more developed the country, uh, the more you're going to be vulnerable or, or the impact of these attacks is going to be more um, um, in your particular country. And of course, Australia is, is a, a powerhouse in terms of different markets and, and, and automation, how the degree of automation that has uh, been implemented into these critical infrastructure sectors, including water. And, and of course, it's, it's equally susceptible as the United States. So of course, the impact is being appreciated a lot more. So I'd like you to stay with that example on water. So just say, use that example, imagine if the water got contaminated, like people would get sick or potentially die Talk to me a little bit more about, hypothetically, water, ransomware attack, whatever it may be. What can people sort of expect from this? Like you said, potentially it gets contaminated, people get sick or die, we can't get access to water. What do you think happens then? How do people start reacting? Because, again, it is a necessity, right? Like people can't cook, they can't drink water, they can't have showers. And if you're looking at that across a, 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 like a, a very big like country, like the U.S. is 300 30 million people, for example, and that's a pretty big impact. So talk to me a little bit more about the impact on not only businesses, but to consumers as well. Yeah, I think the, the, the primary impact, the initial impact, obviously, is to find substitutes. So of course, if you cannot get drinking water, you try to get bottled water or, or you try to boil water or, or find alternatives to, to, to regular tap water. But the, that's just the initial impact. And similar with Colonial Pipeline or any attack with critical infrastructure, it starts by, by having either a workaround or an immediate substitute. But the larger impact, and again, depending on, on who is attacking and, and what the ultimate purpose is, sometimes the ultimate purpose is just financial, monetary, by one of these ransomware gangs. But sometimes the attack can follow ideology. There are certain geopolitical pressures and governments that do not like or, or want to affect the impression of, of somebody else's way of life transform it from being safe and secure to, to less dependable and, and equally as unreliable as, as their own. So that is the second impact. When you start mistrusting the, the processes that are critical for, for regular life, regular functioning, some, some of them are, are government-owned or government-operated, and sometimes some of them are private sector-operated. Depends on which country water may be highly regulated or, or publicly managed versus privately managed. And you start losing trust in institutions that, that today we take for granted. And it's, it's a reversal of, of the conveniences that we've grown to expect and, and, and not question. Does that make sense? 
Yeah, you raised a great point, the operative word trust. So, for example, here in Australia with all the breaches, like people are losing trust in these organisations. They're big companies. They have been breached quite significantly in terms of the fidelity, the the amount of people who have been breached, as well as the sensitivity, sensitivity of the information. So do you think they get to a stage, which I hope not, we're not sitting there like getting water over tap and people are questioning if it's you know being contaminated or not. Do you think people will get to that level though? I think people can. I think that the the duty for uh, the private sector, the public sector is to elevate the level of cybersecurity so that these type of breaches are not do not become a common occurrence. Like I said, they, they are the, the beginning of last year in the US, they started to become a little bit of a common occurrence and it caught the different critical infrastructure sectors off guard because we have not invested in the same manner to protect it. But the answer is not to continue that trend and, and have the public mistrust critical infrastructure providers, whether they're private or public. The real answer is we need to elevate the level of protection that all the operators of critical infrastructure implement and match those that have been best in class for the longest time, like, for example, the financial sector. Yeah, no, very, very interesting point. So you made a comment from understanding that critical infrastructure is highly vulnerable, as we've clearly articulated already in this interview towards like attacks and is underprepared. Talk to me a little bit more about this. What do you mean by underprepared? Well, like I said, for the longest time, critical infrastructure was not monetizable. You could not penetrate critical infrastructure and steal credentials or money. So again, the financial sector, which which owns money or or the retail sector, or anybody that is in the business to consumer where credentials are available, needed to invest in, in cybersecurity to protect those credentials, to protect that money. And the cat and mouse game, which, which makes you evolve, the, the bad guys get better, the good guys get better, helps you advance the level of protection. So you could say banks and, and anybody in retail that holds credentials is protected to a higher degree. The regulations and the guidelines exist, and, and there's significant infrastructure and investments made to, to protect these assets. Now, when it comes to, to critical infrastructure, for the longest time, it, it wasn't monetizable, and, and there was really nothing to be gained other than, than to disrupt systems and processes, which don't follow the, only, only follow the kind of the ideology type of attack versus the profiteering type of attack. But, but when ransomware and, and, Bitcoin changed the game. They basically said any, any uptime, any industry where uptime is important, which includes critical infrastructure, I can monetize that. I can monetize that with, with ransomware and Bitcoin. If you care about the uptime of your process or critical infrastructure system, um, I can apply ransomware, I can disrupt it, and you will pay me. So the uptime became monetizable. So all of a sudden, from one moment to the next, industries that had not participated in this kind of long-term evolutionary uh, process of, of investing in critical infrastructure, and therefore they don't have the budget, they don't have the inertia, they don't have the skill set. They're required to have the budget, the inertia, and the skill set, invest and protect themselves against kind of some of the most sophisticated actors out there. So it's really unfair because, we again, the defenders haven't really prepared for it, and the attackers come from being fairly evolved, and, and therefore at the very beginning they started being very successful. So, Edgar, would you say that critical infrastructure is more underprepared than, say, banking and finance, for example? Oh, absolutely. There was a study done by Deloitte, I believe it was a fairly global study, where you can actually use the investment in IT, for example, or the expenses in IT as a proportion of your revenues. 
to group industries and you would find finance and, and retail insurance um, in the top where the investment into IT as a proportion of your revenues, it's pretty high. And in the back of that list, you'll find critical infrastructure sectors like oil and gas, electricity, water, and so forth. And there was a further study by, done by McKinsey, I believe, where not only did they look at the IT uh, spend as a proportion of revenues, but the cybersecurity spend as a proportion of IT spend. And they found that it was even lower. So not only critical infrastructure sectors are investing less as a portion of their revenues, but their investment in cybersecurities are even lower. They're just starting to go up the digital transformation curve and cybersecurity is an afterthought. That's really interesting. Why do you think that's the case though? Because I asked this because I used to work in a bank and security. Yes, it's all for the people who use their money, but like it's just money, right? But if you're contaminating water and things like that, like people could lose their lives. So why is critical infrastructure have less of a focus considering the impact is high? Yeah, I think the impact, it, it really, it's in the eye of the beholder. So again, for the longest time, could you do something and, and have something monetizable back very quickly? And, and when you, you can clearly see that in a bank, banking websites and all sorts of financial platforms or applications were protected from the very beginning because the, the money or credentials or any type of fraud could be immediately monetizable. Something that you do to what for the longest time was not monetizable. So unless you were following some ideology type of incentive for the attack, you wouldn't do it. There's nothing to be gained. And again, ransomware changed that, right? Now with ransomware, I can attack, say, going to the pipeline or, or anyone else that, you know, that, for example, affects your supply chain, affects the ability of products that you really care about, may affect your transportation, may affect your electricity. And, and ransomware, in, with combina in combination with Bitcoin, changes that monetization factor. It used to be zero monetization to now I can monetize it in the same way. I can demand some Bitcoin to be deposited somewhere and without, without, without much more, you can get monetization from attacking critical infrastructure. That's fairly new. And that's why the investment trends have not been there. Gotcha. Okay. That's a great point. Because now there is this monetization factor, which you've just spoken about, is that going to influence the government now, for example, put more regulation in to say, hey, like this is their standard or you need to be compliant here, here and here. What's that going to look like? Because again, going yeah. back to the impact is greater. Like losing money is like, one thing, but like people literally dying because they're drinking bad water is another thing. Yeah, absolutely. So in the US, for example, Nosomi and, and several of our peers have formed the OT coalition. In addition, we have partnered with, with Visa in the US, again, to facilitate and provide our, our industry input in terms of guidelines that are coming out for different industries. It started with the world of, of gas, but it's evolving and including going forward the world, the world of transportation air transport, ground transport, and, and so forth. Of course, here in Australia, you have a lot of guidelines that are coming out. Critical infrastructure is one of them. And implementing risk programs and providing guidelines for notification when a cyber attack happens is the beginning. I believe the world is evolving in that way. The governments are providing guidelines. Critical infrastructure operators and critical infrastructure operators are going to have to meet those guidelines, regulations, and start that budget or spend inertia that is you know, a, a, a normal habit in the world of, say, financial institutions, but it's, it's a new muscle when it comes to critical infrastructure. Well, I guess as you would know, the government brought in like SOCI and that type of regulation recently. So I guess that will help. But again, it's not a flick of a switch. It's all going to be happening overnight. It's going to be a bit of a process, a bit of a journey. What are your thoughts on that? 
Yeah, unfortunately, it is a little bit of a journey. And I think the I refer to it as, as inertia. So you have a, a slow start. I think meeting these guidelines is extremely important. And, and, you know, I know so many, we refer to the stance that people have initially towards these guidelines as the pre-breach mentality or pre-attack mentality. And, and what we recommend is, is, in terms of how to think about all this, is to try to adopt a post-breach mentality. So if you think about whether you're this water operator that I mentioned or, or your colonial pipeline or your whomever, your approach towards appreciating some of these regulations and trying to meet them changes dramatically whether you're pre-breach versus post-breach. So the ideal solution, and of course, let me just maybe describe it, pre-breach, people are seeing these guidelines as a, maybe like a nuisance or like a, something that you have to do and you may want to delay it or do the minimal as minimal as possible. Post-breach, of course, everything changes. When you ha- see your systems halted and, and your computer's you know, under ransomware attack and, and unable to come back and your availability of your services is, is significantly compromised, it's pretty traumatic. And your view around these guidelines and regulations and how you should spend in, into elevating your cybersecurity stance changes in a significant way. The best outcome or the best practice would be, how do I adopt a post-breach mentality without the trauma of having to go through a breach, which is, of course, not easy. It's really hard. It requires courage, creativity, commitment, and and executive sponsorship into cybersecurity programs. Okay, so I want to look into your thoughts on the pre-breach mindset. Uh, We can get to post-breach in a second. So we often talk in the industry, as you know, about performing tabletop exercises, like being prepared, having a plan, practicing the plan. But then this often just gets pushed down the list. Other things pop up. People got to get their head above the water, keep keep the lights on when it comes to security. There's a lot of things going on. So what would be your advice to keeping this topic of pre-breach mindset top of mind? Yeah, it's as, as you point out, it's really hard to, to be good at this because there's always the day-to-day business. We're already trying to do too much. You want me to do one more thing. And the worst one is actually when I don't appreciate the fact that this event that you're talking about, for example, hasn't happened here. So it hasn't happened here. And, and you can't tell me statistics around it happening anytime soon. So why would I try to protect against it? That's actually the, the toughest one. If, you, if I may make an analogy, right? When everyone, any one of us gets into our cars, we put on our seatbelts, right? And that would be like the protection. Some people have never had a car accident, but you are fairly aware of car accidents. You can get statistics around car accidents. And everybody knows that in 99.9% of circumstances, wearing your seatbelt is better and it's easier to do. And it, every car has one and you don't have to, it's not a hustle, hassle or an investment required. They come with a car. So this is a good analogy because some things are similar. Some things are extremely different. Cybersecurity does require an investment. It does require a significant effort. It does require to for us to exercise a muscle that we don't have. In terms of the mentality, you know, it's hard, harder to appreciate how water in Australia, for example, could be affected in a neg- or impacted in a very negative way when it really hasn't happened in Australia. Nobody has any Australian memory of something like that happening. It hasn't happened here. It would be probably your worst enemy. And of course, it has happened in the US and, and the US problem is different. Our, our water infrastructure from a financial perspective is regulated and, and doesn't have a lot of investment money laying around. It's, it's a cost plus industry where every investment needs to come from somewhere. It's either government owned, government financed. So it's much harder to change budgetary availability for investments in cybersecurity. 
I don't know exactly how it is here in, the, in Australia, but you can see the elements of the pre-breach mentality coming together to slow things down and providing negative inertia in that, in that respect. So I definitely get your analogy about the seatbelt. Great, great way of putting it. How do we get people in our teams, our boards, our executives to be like, think of the seatbelt. How do we get people there? Because at the moment, everyone's just getting in the car and they're going for a joyride and there's no seatbelt. There's probably even not even a seatbelt installed for some of these people. I so think what the, would be your advice? Yeah, yeah. I think that we have a great examples in the US. The role that CISA is playing in the US when it comes to critical infrastructure and the, the good example and, and how we take some of these good examples to, to social and to greater distribution is, is, is a good set of examples to copy here, for example, that would be my recommendation. If you look at what CISA is doing, they're not only providing guidelines that are applicable to specific verticals, and, and that has started with, with Swaki. Multi-factor authentication, for example, is the easiest thing, most seatbelt-like that all of us should be doing. We should all have multi-factor authentication kind of mandated almost because it's the easiest thing to do. It is how most hacks start with, with a compromise around user, whether it's a phishing attack or social engineering. And, and multi-factor authentication assists in the, in prevents misuse of credentials and, and which is how everything starts, right? For example, CIS has been advertising and, and promoting multi-factor authentication for the longest time. It's the easiest thing, first step that we should all be doing in addition to providing some of those vertical guidelines for particular industries. You can go always the extra step and say, well, listen, all networks that support critical infrastructure should be monitored People should have a list of assets that are connected to critical infrastructure. You should know what they are. You should understand the vulnerabilities. Saki is starting to do that with the, the, the part of Saki that really talks about implementing risk management programs. Those risk management programs, of course, could include monitoring of critical infrastructure networks, understanding assets connected to those critical infrastructure networks, understand authorized access or abnormal access to critical infrastructure networks and so forth. But you can also start really simple, like I mentioned, with the most seatbelt-like recommendation, which would be multi-factor authentication when it comes to users of critical infrastructure. Do you think as well, like you mentioned before, that especially in Australia, for example, a water incident in terms of critical infrastructure hasn't really happened. Do you think people rely on, well, it hasn't happened in X amount of years, it maybe won't happen, which maybe sinks in a little bit of complacency there? I, I think it does. We have the world to watch, right? So right now we obviously have a lot of geopolitical pressures happening, a lot of critical infrastructure being affected with physical attacks, but as well as um, cyber attacks. So the geopolitical pressures today, they're all about Russia and the Ukraine. Tomorrow, they may include your other actors, other regions that have different type of ambitions or different type of ideology. And yeah, Australia is not too far away from the rest of the world. Sure. It doesn't feel like that sometimes, especially when you get a flight of the US. It's a pretty long flight. So I want to now talk about Maybe let's talk about still in the, the pre-breach mindset of practicing incident response plans, for example. So when an, accident, when an actual incident occurs, people seem to forget the plan, which you probably are aware of. So what would be advice to keeping people on the right track? Because again, emo emotions run high, people feel stressed, they feel overwhelmed. So it's easy in theory to practice it when you're in a controlled environment, but when things are going out of control very hard to keep you cool and to keep people doing the right thing. What would be your advice towards that? I think my best advice would be practice, practice, practice. I think I come from the world of data management and, and specifically backup and recovery. If everybody talks about, you know, all your systems, especially your critical systems 
should be backed up. And and sometimes it's very easy to say, check the box. My this server over here is is backed up. There's a backup process that occurs with some frequency, which is great. But when you have a, a major situation, having a system backed up is not doesn't provide any benefit. Backup by itself is useless. The only important part of backup or the only reason you backup is so that you can recover. So checking the box after a server's backed up is, in my mind, really silly. You should check the box only where you're able to recover in the same fashion that you would need to recover when something happens. So for example, again, let me just stay with backup for a second. Backup is a very asymmetrical process. You can backup a machine or all of your machines one at a time. But if you ever had to recover, you had to recover everything at once, or you would have to recover systems in the right order so that the services come back with at the right priority, importance, and precedence. And people don't necessarily practice those scenarios. They have servers backed up. Can you back up the server? Yeah. Can you recover the server? Great. But but that doesn't really implement the the kind of asymmetrical nature of backup. Where you can back up one server at a time, but if you need to recover, you need to recover in mass. So that's a, just a quick example of of practice, practice, practice. You should not only make sure that every server that is critical is backed up, but you know exactly how, in what order, in in with what priority, servers need to be recovered and brought back online. In the case of cyber, backup is also a very important you know part of the answer. You, you must have a resilient organization. A resilient organization is one that can be attacked by ransomware and you know exactly when ransomware, you can detect when ransomware enter, you can detect the last save point, saved snapshot that you have of your systems and you need to go back to, to that world and recover. If you have never practiced that, and then you're, you're, you need to follow the, the maybe less desired path of a, of a ransomware attack, which is pay. And even when you pay and you get credentials to decrypt your machines, you don't have the right speed and processes to bring your systems back. You're, you you may have a thousand servers servers that were impacted, and even now that you have the keys after you paid, now you have to apply that key to a thousand servers, and and you don't have any processes for that. So I think you talked a little bit about the playbooks, and everybody forgets the playbooks. I think sometimes the playbooks are non all inclusive of what everything that needs to happen, and and contemplates every single decision whether you're trying to recover based on your last save point, or you're actually paid and have the credentials and assuming that you got the credentials after you paid. And, and now what do you do with those uh, decryption keys? Okay. So going back to your point on practice, practice, practice. Great point. How often should people be practicing? Is it once a week, once a day? How many hours? Who's involved? Can you talk to me a little bit more about that? I think it really depends on on how digitized the, the process is, how what's the scope of the process. I think the processes should be implemented with the right cadence. The backup happens once a day. In most cases, there is a full backup versus incremental backup. Sometimes you have active-active disaster recovery. It really depends on what the scope and the process is. The full recovery sh- should be something that is practiced. Again, depends on, on budgets and the criticality of different systems. You may not be have the 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 budget or the the need to to do a full critical recovery every month. Some people may do it once, twice a year, but but you should do it. You should understand. People should understand what it entails. And to your point, I think have a playbook that you're not going to forget when something bad happens. If you practice it once a year, two times a year, three times a year, it's going to be harder for people to forget their playbook when something bad happens. 
So as a rule of thumb, would you say once a month or once a quarter is reasonable? And I understand it's always going to depend, but if you had to give a number perhaps for people, what what do you think is safe sort of bet? Like once a year is obviously not enough, twice is definitely not enough, but every day is obviously too much. But yeah, do you have somewhere there you'd say, hey, this is a, is a good general rule of thumb? I don't think there are general rules of thumbs. I think there are going to be best practices by industry. Like I said, water, for example, is extreme, has a, a, a lot of scarcity when it comes to resources on on people, on on backup, on, on everything, on everything. So demanding that they do the same thing as a bank is not reasonable. So I think each industry and industry consortia has to come up kind of with their own best practice, minimal requirements, and and we shouldn't have one one dictated for everybody else. And I think, you know, what CISA is doing, for example, is, is trying to come up with guidelines associated with verticals, because verticals tend to be grouped by their kind of the same characteristics, same attributes, same set of needs and availability of resources. So maybe that having some of these guidelines, some of these requirements, some of these best practices by vertical may eventually prove to make the most sense. Totally hear what you're saying. And absolutely, there's not one size that fits all. So if we had to get an example, I don't know whether it's water, in terms of vertical guidelines, do you have any sort of insight on that? What is, if we focus on water or whatever example you want to use, do you have any sort of indication? I think water, and I think my experience is primarily with the US, water, as I mentioned, is, is one of the verticals where you're starting the most from scratch. You may have some of the older, oldest systems, the lower practices when it comes to cybersecurity. It may, I think all smart, regardless of what the practices were there, I think people who were there were doing their best with what they had, but it proved that it was not too hard for somebody to, to gain remote access into the system. In that case, it may be having best practices around segmentation, around remote access, secure remote access specifically, and again, multi-factor authentication. Going into, and that again is to protect yourself against a remote access attack. That In that case, ransomware was not an issue. So the whole conversation that we just had about backup and doing a full recovery does not apply because the attack is different. But if you wanted to protect against ransomware, yeah, then of course you, you want to make sure that every single one of your services is backed up, never stop there. Back, having all your services backed up is not enough. You have to be able to prove to yourself that you can do a orderly and full recovery once you have identified a safe point in time to recover to or to recover from. Okay. So I'd like to talk about post-breach mindset. You've obviously raised it a few times. Talk to me a little bit more about this. What does this look like from your point of view? Well, in a post-breach mindset, you've already gone through the trauma of an attack. So you already changed the, the priority level of, of cyber. It is the point in time where you think, wow, if I, did had, if, if I had implemented multi-factor authentication, for example, it would have been harder for people to steal credentials and therefore harder for the initial ransomware to penetrate my systems and harder for that initial malware to do lateral movement and identify systems and reach that command and control server that was able to extend that attack through our organization. It's, it forces people to think about this more. I think it's pre-breach mindset. It's, it's a nuisance. I don't want to deal with it. My, I already have too many things to do. Uptime is my number one requirement. Everything else is a distraction. Two, Cybersecurity is one of those pillars and requirements for uptime, and I need to start focusing on them, and I need to elevate and bring my cybersecurity investments, practices, and skills to par to support my availability requirements, my goals of availability in terms of the, the system that I'm, or the service that I'm providing. So that's the main difference between pre-breach and post-breach is, is the importance, elevated importance. I wish I would have done a lot of those things. Some of the things were 
fairly simple to do. Again, I keep using multi-filter authentication, fairly easy to implement and uh, as easy as you know, putting your seatbelt before you start driving your car. So what do you think from your experience people struggle more with? Is it pre, pre-breach mindset or post-breach mindset? I mean, they're good and bad. it's not good or bad. It's just they're both completely different. But what, what are you seeing people really struggle with? When, when specifically when it comes to critical infrastructure, as I mentioned, for the longest time, these attacks were not common. So it's really hard for a new category, critical infrastructure, to insert itself into the budget mix. And post-breach mentality, it really doesn't matter. The money has to come from somewhere and we have to start today. And that's one of the biggest advantages of, of being able to position yourself into a post-breach mentality, hopefully without the, the breach or the attack. So I want to get your thoughts on moving forward now. Is there any sort of hypothesis in terms of the future of critical infrastructure that you'd like to share with our audience today? Yeah, absolutely. So number one, critical infrastructure is going through the same emotion that all systems and everyone of us is going through, which is called digital transformation. And digital transformation is all about everything becoming more digital, things becoming more automated. When you look at the growth of, of IoT, what is the growth of IoT? People are talking about IoT. Is, is having a lot more sensors, a lot more information about a particular process, a lot more data science and analytics applied to it. And, and that is only going to increase. And, and as we increase, as we want to get more out of our data and specifically our, our, out of our critical infrastructure data, the attack surface in, and is going to increase either because we're adding more sensors or we're digitizing more or automating more. Or automating more. So the, if you look at the other side, the geopolitical pressures are not going to necessarily to be easier or lower in the future. And the existence of, of attacks and ransomware gangs is not going to disappear all of a sudden. So the propensity for attacks is going to be higher. I think we've seen it. They're more common all the time in different countries. And initially it was the US, then it's Germany, not necessarily critical infrastructure yet, but you've seen very significant attacks here in Australia, both in the public and the private sector. So the level of attacks is, is going to continue to evolve in the same cat and mouse pace that I signal earlier or that I talked about earlier. And, and you, one of the things that I would expect is all sectors affected, which now include critical infrastructure, need to enter into that evolution of, of getting better over time, getting matching the skill set, tool set, and investment of the attackers. So that the, the incorporation of critical infrastructure into that cadence or cycle is something that, that we should all expect. Thanks for sharing. I think there's some insights. And for just to maybe conclude our interview, is there anything that you'd like to, in terms of final comments or closing comments, you'd like to leave with our audience today? Again, anything that you'd like them to, to think about post our interview today? Well, we've talked about the importance of critical infrastructure. Sometimes we take a lot of our critical infrastructure for granted. We, we wake up in the morning, electricity is there. We can make our coffee. We take the train to work or, or we get in our cars and there's you know, gas is available. Critical infrastructure is fundamental and to, to life and in, in, in human life. And sometimes we don't think about how cybersecurity is going to, or cybersecurity, the threat around cybersecurity and the attack surfaces that it continues to grow could affect and impact our lives. You know, the world has changed in a significant way. We're now in the post-colonial pipeline world in which in the case of colonial pipeline, it was all about ransomware, but it could be, especially with our geopolitical pressures, all about ideology. Your country must be part of my country, or I don't like the way you, know, you live because my way of living is better, 
or maybe yours is as bad as mine, those geopolitical pressures and ideologies are going to start affecting our lives more and more in ways that we're not necessarily prepared to handle. And I think the sooner we can start in this journey, and I think governments have a great role to play when it comes to providing initial guidelines, but all of us in terms of our stance towards these guidelines and, and our willingness to, to get the wheel turning in terms of investment, skill set preparation, and so forth, it's extremely important for us to come out in the best possible light here in this digital transformation journey. Well, thank you. I think that, yeah, look, as you mentioned, that it's, we want to be able to illuminate and put more of a spotlight on critical infrastructure and really highlight the impact that would have on us as consumers, like you mentioned, whether it's catching the train, making a cup of coffee, whatever it may be. So I think that these are the things I'd love to, that I wanted to get you on the show to really share your thoughts because again, this is real, it's happening. And again, it's not to scare anyone, but it's also to make sense of a very complicated and complex industry. So I really appreciate your thoughts and your insights. And thanks for your time today, Edgar. I really appreciate you coming on the show. Carissa, thank you so much. Thanks for having me. It's been my, my pleasure. Thanks for tuning in. We hope that you found today's episode useful and you took away a few key points. Don't forget to subscribe to our podcast to get our latest episodes. This podcast is brought to you by MercSec, the specialists in security, search, and recruitment solutions. Visit MercSec.com to connect today. If you'd like to find out how KBI can help grow your cyber business, then please head over to kbi.digital. This podcast was brought to you by KBI.media, the voice of cyber.